This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. Our guest today is Captain Charles Moore of the Algalita Marine Research Foundation, who in 1997 first discovered the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, a gyre of marine litter in the central North Pacific Ocean estimated to be twice the size of Texas. Ever since, Captain Moore has dedicated his time and resources to understanding and remediating the ocean's plastic load. His 1999 study shocked the scientific world when it found six times more plastic fragments by weight in the central Pacific than the associated zooplankton, Captain Charles Moore, welcome to Weekly Signals. Are you there, Captain Moore? Oh, are you there? I'm sorry. Captain Charles Moore, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thank you. Sorry about that. I don't know if you heard our introduction at all, but uh, I, I was wondering how it is that you first got involved in uh, uh, the sea, in, in oceanography, and, and how did you become a sailor? Well, I've uh, sort of uh, immersed myself in the sea since it was about uh, 20 meters from my front door uh, <laughs> as a child. And uh, I was sailing a Sabbath at five years old and yeah. uh, diving and swimming. And in those days, we did a lot of aquaplaning. Uh, that's an ancient form of wakeboarding. Oh, really? <laughs> so uh, I was uh, in, in, immersed. I consider myself basically a marine mammal. And uh, uh, my father was shanghaied onto a rum-running boat during the Prohibition. He was a farm boy from Colorado, and he learned salt water bringing rum from Cedros Island to La Jolla during the Prohibition. Really? So, yeah, he wanted his kids to, to know the ocean. Uh and uh, we got a sailboat, and he sailed us to Hawaii when I was uh, 14. So, yeah, I've been uh, sailing for quite a while. Well, uh, Captain Moore, were you, were you crewing uh, on, your, <laughs> on your way over to uh, Hawaii? Were you part of the you, – you had to make it work, didn't you? Yeah, no, uh, we were four hours on, eight hours off, uh, no autopilot. Uh, you're steering the whole time. Wow. And uh, – didn't see any trash uh, in 1961 sailing to Hawaii. Oh. Now, could you? I'm sure you've told this story a thousand times, but how about a thousand and one for us? How how is it that you you uh, ran into the uh, the garbage patch? Well, I like to cut corners and uh, take <laughs> shortcuts. And uh, typically, when you sail back from Hawaii, you sail around the Pacific Gyre because it's virtually windless. Uh, uh, and uh, the doldrums, as it were, it's uh, known as the horse latitudes, where livestock vessels, if they were caught there, ended up jettisoning their 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 stock. So uh, that's how it got the name, the horse latitude. So a sailboat coming back from Hawaii will sail north uh, in the trade winds, which blow in a northeasterly direction, until they hit the westerlies up above 40 degrees north latitude, you begin to run into westerly winds. Those are the, these are the winds that define this gyre. The westerlies are at the top edge, and uh, these easterlies at the bottom, and uh, you uh, create this huge whirlpool. Well, sailors have to sail around this uh, whirlpool in order to maintain 
good speed, but we were a research vessel and had a fuel bladder on deck and a couple of diesel engines, so uh, I decided to take a shortcut. Instead of going up to above 40 north, about 35 north, we hung a right turn for L.A., which is, you know, right at around 35 degrees north latitude. So we just were making a beeline for home, uh, and this was 1997, which was the largest El Nino on record, and that gyro was extra large. So we ended up not uh, even making it with all our fuel. We ended up having to have one of the boats that had raced over there with us bring us out fuel from Santa Barbara. So it was a huge, even at Santa Cruz Island with all the blue whales coming up around us, uh, we ran out of fuel. There was no wind. It's very rare to have no wind at all in the northern Channel Islands. So uh, during this period of uh, crossing this uh, calm, uh, the the fact that uh, we do have very neutrally buoyant plastic trash in the ocean meant that it was able to reach the surface. A little bit of wave action can drive it down, but when it's calm, it can pretty much bob up around near the top. So it wasn't so much that I saw a mat or, you know, a giant parking lot full of trash. This was individual pieces here and there, but it just bothered me for a whole week not to be able to come on deck and not see some debris of human origin. So I hadn't planned to survey it at that time, but I resolved to come back and quantify it because it seemed abnormally persistent. Was this just a curiosity to you at the time, or did you did you have any feel for the magnitude of what you were going through? Uh, you know. Well, I have a scientific background, and I've been involved in ocean water monitoring, and I did a kind of off-the-cuff uh, calculation estimating a half a pound of trash in a 100 square meters and multiplied that by kind of a circular area comprising the area we were transiting, realizing that there was a, an atmospheric phenomenon associated with this situation and uh, came up with uh, a huge number. And uh, I said, well, my goodness, if, uh, if my calculation is even off by a factor of 100, it's still an enormous amount of trash. So I worked with uh, professionals in designing uh, sampling protocol to uh, come up with a method for uh, quantifying the debris out there and went back two years later and that's when we really had that aha moment that there's a new component of ocean water and it's plastic trash yeah. so this was in 1999 you went back is that what you're right right now now it, describe for us uh, we, it, because i we think we're, we're our listeners and myself are kind of conjuring up what it is that you saw out there i assume you you saw the usual array of plastic caps and bottles and all that but what we're talking about as i understand is is a much smaller kind of uh, component here, are we not? We're talking about po almost like yeah. small polymers, if, if that's the right way to put yeah, it. Yeah, I wasn't looking for those in 1997 when we first made this discovery. I uh, just happened to see things. And, of course, the things I was seeing casually were greater than a half an inch in diameter. So I thought I was going to go out there and drag a net with a half-inch mesh and catch toothbrushes and bottle caps and soap bottles and stuff like this. So I did, developed a net that would, I could string between the two holes of, uh, holes of our catamaran research vessel and, and drag in that manner. But in talking with uh, uh, Dr. Ebesmeyer, whose book Floats of Metrics just came out, uh, and showing him some of the debris that had washed up on Hawaiian beaches, uh, 
he suggested that we look for smaller stuff that uh, we use a zooplankton trawl. So I was casting around for a circular net that's used what they call an oblique tow. When I uh, discussed the issue with Chuck Mitchell at uh, NBC down in Irvine, uh, Marine Biological Consultants, uh, he suggested we using a manta trawl, which skims the surface uh, using a plankton net, and it has a couple of wings and a mouth, and it's a very effective tool for uh, quantifying the uh, material, uh, especially zooplankton at the surface of the ocean. So what? that turned out to be the story. It wasn't so much this half-inch stuff. As a matter of fact, that net didn't produce very good for us that first trip. It was the manta trawl with a third of a millimeter mesh that pulled up all these fragments that, that was the story. As a matter of fact, the story was so shocking that in our final tow, we pulled up more pieces of plastic than individual planktonic organisms. My goodness. So the, this netting that you're, you're talking about using is obviously just very, very fine, very small in, uh, openings, allows you to sort of gather up these very small particles of plastic. Is that, yeah, a third right? of a millimeter is uh, 333 microns, and Dr. Thompson over in the U.K. has looked down to two microns uh, in his work and found that those size particles uh, get readily translated into the circulatory system of the edible muscle, the mitilus edulis. So uh, it, the fact that we're towing a third of a millimeter mesh is actually big compared to uh, what these plastic particles break into before they disappear because they don't biodegrade, they just brittle become embrittled and break into smaller and smaller pieces of polymer and and even the individual polymer molecule must undergo further oxidative uh, uh, degradation before it can be ingested and turned back into carbon dioxide and water so it's a long long process and all the numbers you hear associated with different types of debris hundreds of years and so on are just guesses based on uh, some very limited data uh, we're speaking with Captain Charles Moore of the Algalita Marine Research Foundation. Um, what does the Great Pacific Garbage Patch mean for the area? What What have you seen out there? How's it affected the uh, the life out in the Pacific? Well, can, can I just jump in? Okay. Do we have an? You have an estimate of just? You said we we said twice the size of Texas. Is that or the size? Well, of, uh, this controversy, which is bound to go on until some. Uh, quantity of data is collected either by government or non-governmental agencies uh, is uh, bound to be, uh, uh, you know, confusing to people because uh, what we're trying to determine here is how badly polluted the ocean is with our plastic waste. And we do know from modeling diagrams that there are five garbage patches in the world's oceans. Uh, these subtropical gyres make up 40% of the entire world ocean. And within the subtropical gyres, there are conversion uh, zones in which this stuff uh, gets concentrated. Now, the question I want to pose to you is, suppose you have a kind of a graveyard for plastic, which is twice the size of Texas, but you're populating that graveyard with new corpses uh, at a faster rate than than ever before in the history of the world and the highway that which is the world ocean leading to these graveyards may be more polluted because of the huge influx of plastic due to 
the fact that uh, it's the lubricant of globalization and has no end game, uh, no afterlife, less than 5% is getting recycled. So we have this huge input from around the Pacific Rim and other parts of the world ocean, and yet, uh, you know, we're trying to just talk about the places where it ends up. As a matter of fact, it's pretty much everywhere. It's it's coming from everywhere, and it's going to these garbage patches. But, uh, you know, we can debate how big the garbage patch is, but then we have to define what, what we want to call garbage patch. Is it going to be a million pieces per square kilometer? Is it going to be 2 million pieces per square kilometer? Is it going to be 10,000 pieces? If it's 10,000 pieces per square kilometer, it's huge. If it's uh, 2 million pieces per square kilometer, it's somewhat smaller. So maybe I'd say around you know a million pieces per square kilometer, that's where you're going to get something twice the size of Texas for the garbage patch. But if you define it as... Uh, fewer than that, then it stretches, you know, perhaps the size of Africa, maybe 10 million square miles. Well, then let's get to Nathan's question, which is what impact is it having on on? Well, uh, it's huge. Uh, these garbage patches correspond to terrestrial deserts. They're in the same latitudes, you know, like our deserts on the mainland, and they're depauperate. The, the, the upwelling that occurs in the coastal zone that gives us these huge plankton blooms and uh, even red tides, but uh, supplies an enormous food web, doesn't occur in the deep ocean. The deep ocean is over two to three miles deep uh, most places, and uh, you don't get this enormous upwelling of nutrients. You know, everything that ever lived in the ocean and died in, ends up on the bottom. That's where most of the life is in the ocean is those sediments, and they're full of nutrients. And if you've got this enormous distance between the bottom and the surface, those nutrients, no matter how big of a hurricane, they never are upwelled and reach the surface. Uh, so it's just photosynthesis that drives production in these gyres, and uh, that photosynthetic activity is consumed nearly entirely each and every day by the zooplankton, the phytoplankton, the plant plankton created by photosynthesis are consumed by the zooplankton, and then that happens on a daily basis. Now, if you add this component, which is not digestible and not nutritive, and yet outnumbers, in some cases, the actual planktonic organisms that are there, you're going to get a tremendous uh, ingestion phenomenon going on, and that's what we're finding. And 1,391 pieces of plastic and 671 little fish, uh, these are the most common fish in the ocean, the lanternfish that we surveyed, and they are consuming plastic in massive quantities. We had one little fish the size of an anchovy with 84-millimeter-sized pieces of plastic in its stomach. The consequences of that, let's, let's not even talk about how plastic absorbs pollutants and transmits them to the organism. Let's talk about the fact that plastic floats. These fish are migrants. The largest daily migration of life on Earth takes place when these mesopelagic fish come up from a thousand plus meters below the surface every night to feed at the surface and these organisms have to turn around at daybreak and head back down we're, we're putting float little fish at 84 little tiny life preservers little flotation devices in its stomach and it's got no nutrition added because of that so it's having to power back down a mile deep with where in a life a tremendous amount of flotation and 
this to me is is a huge problem in itself. What are we doing to these fish when we're making it so they can't swim and migrate properly uh, down to this zone where they hide from predators? So, you know, there's a whole lot of consequences of us uh, polluting the ocean with our trash. What sort of consequence has this brought to your diet? <laughs> do you eat, do you eat fish anymore? Well, you know. Uh, we're seeing it in the small fish. We had this recipe on our last voyage created by one of the crew called minostrone, in which, uh, you know, because bioaccumulation occurs throughout, uh, the, uh, throughout the, uh, marine food chain and large organisms tend to bioaccumulate toxicants, we were talking about how probably what we want to do is eat small fish, uh, because, uh, they've had less time to accumulate these toxicants. But when we see 84 pieces of polluted plastic inside uh, a tiny little fish, then our minestrone uh, recipe seems somewhat less appetizing. So there are issues uh, with eating fish. Uh, there are issues, uh, and the way I express it is that, you know, uh, through careful husbandry, uh, a land-based farmer can produce an organic product which can be labeled free from pesticides but there's no fishmonger on earth that can sell you a labeled organic wild-caught fish the ocean is just simply too polluted is there any is there any way that if we were to somehow wave a wave our a hand and stop the inputting well let me back up where is most of this plastic coming from is it coming from on land is it so how does it get into the ocean? Well, we uh, did a study for the water board here in the state of California, and we put nets in the two main rivers draining the L.A. watershed, the San Gabriel River and the Los Angeles River, and we quantified the amount of debris coming down in two rainy days and one dry day. And there were 60 tons, 2.3 billion pieces of plastic, and uh most of that stuff was already below what the government defines as trash in their so-called total maximum daily load, which is zero for trash that's allowable. Uh, they still are, would be allowing a significant portion because five millimeters is the cutoff uh, for the definition of trash. And we found two billion pieces under five millimeters coming down the rivers into the sea. This so, is in one day? Uh, in uh, three days, two rainy days and one dry day, we found 60 tons, 2.3 billion pieces. Ten percent of that was the pre-production plastic pellets, which is the feedstock of the plastic industry. Never seen a consumer, just stuff coming out of the rail cars that uh, feed the thousands of plastic processors in the uh, L.A. area. So uh, there's uh, production pellets, there's plastic objects, consumer objects that are busted up. There's all kind of balls and sports equipment. There's all kind of fast food items. Those are running out into the ocean. But uh, in addition to those land-based sources, uh, the fishing industry is a major contributor out in the central gyre because uh, the objects that they deploy are designed to float. They have big floats uh, attached to big nets, and the nets are synthetic polymers, mostly polyethylene and polypropylene. And uh, those uh, crates that they carry, they're bait in, they're bait uh, uh, containers, and simply the um, 
the materials that uh, associated with work at sea um, get dumped a lot. So when we're out there fishing stuff up, uh, we find a lot of uh, fishing industry-related stuff. But as we get closer to shore, we see more of the land-based debris. Well, then the second part of my question is, let's say we could wave our a wand and stop this from coming into the ocean. Does the, is, is it possible that the ocean over time ha- can clean, cleanse itself of this material? Or is uh, this yeah, something the ocean uh, is always knitting. It's always uh, pairing like with like when these shoe spills. You know, the left shoe goes to one beach and the right shoe will go to another. And these little uh, jellyfish that have sails on them, the Valella Valella, have uh, some on a port tack and some on a starboard tack, and they get separated. So... Things are always moving around in the ocean, and things are getting knitted together. We've seen windrows of debris where these uh, ghost nets are being formed, where hawsers are being knitted together with tiny shards of line and net fragments and making balls of this stuff. So, uh, unfortunately, when those balls run aground, they cause a lot of damage. They break up the coral and strangle the monk seals in Hawaii. So NOAA, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, is spending a lot of money trying to figure out how to track those things down and get rid of them. Uh, so the big pieces, you know, people are mounting efforts to get them out. Uh, haven't really been successful yet, but uh, they will come ashore eventually. A lot of them will stay for uh, decades in these central gyres. So to answer your question, um, some of it will sink to the bottom, some of it will get washed on beaches, and some of it will stay for decades, perhaps centuries, in these central gyres. So even if we turn off the plastic switch by magic, uh, we'll still have plastic washing up uh, for generations. So what can we possibly do except move, uh, be, I mean, what, what, what can we do? Throw away society yeah, down. Yeah. What can we do besides that? Is, are, are we pretty well, much... We, we, uh, I think, uh, you know, we have to alert ourselves to the fact that we're underperforming as a species. Uh, you know, uh, the, the potential for good that uh, we have uh, is tremendous, but we're wasting that with uh, our throwaway lifestyle. Uh, we could be uh, creating products that liberate us from this society of constant maintenance. Uh, if plastic lasts forever, let's make products that last forever. I mean, what's wrong with having uh, a product that you can rely on that you don't have to replace every six months or every year or every two or three years or even every few minutes? Uh, in the case of many uh, throwaway items, uh, their their life is only seconds. So, you know, we're, when we if we must have these uh, fast-track trash items, let's make them degradable you know let's have a chemical clock inside of each item that is set to a time that's appropriate to that uh lifespan of that product uh we're capable of doing that but we're underperforming we have no will to regulate the market and uh, that's been shown uh, in the recent economic collapse i think it's a teachable moment where we yeah. need to say everyone is going to need to change their lifestyle because uh the way we're Operating is not sustainable since, you know, the dawn of the industrial area. We've been having these crazy uh, speculative uh, initiatives that crash. Let's start planning for a future that's uh, infinitely recyclable, that acts like a forest where you don't have to fertilize, but you have a tremendous productivity. You know, let's use uh, the natural uh, agricultural model as a... uh, 
goal and create that for our industry. Let's have the products that we make feedstocks for the next generation of products and not use chemicals and materials that pollute and are non-recyclable. You know, this is, and you're absolutely right, and you're, you're right. I think your observation is correct that the, the economy sort of imploding here has been or is an opportunity to, to sort of reconfigure the way that we do business in the world. And what frightens me is we're faced with the prospect of these burgeoning economies around the world, particularly China, which is obviously uh, on the Pacific Rim, uh, and you can only imagine the the ability to output plastic from a society that size, an economy that size. So we need to get on top of this. Yeah, there's 15,000 plastic processors in India employing half a million people, and they do not have a petroleum or a natural gas industry, which are the two feedstocks for plastics. So uh, this technology is proliferating. Uh, this material is the lubricant of globalization and allows us to do these crazy expansions into the cheapest labor market uh, and bring those products back uh, to the consumer culture in a pristine condition wrapped in plastic, which then becomes instant waste and has no afterlife, no recovery. So uh, we really must embrace uh, the concept of zero waste, which nature has always done. In ecosystems, everything is used. But how will nature use plastic in her ecosystem? We've now made that part of the natural ecosystem. How is nature supposed to deal with that? Yeah. Uh, your organization, the Algalita uh, Foundation, uh, it's, you're doing primarily independent research there. Do you think that that has given you an advantage to be independent, to, to do what you think is uh, what needs to be done rather than go through a process? is, is your independent uh, It's, it's not so much that government can't do uh, independent uh, peer-reviewed research, which uh -huh. is accurate and, and reproducible. It's that we're talking about the commons here. This area doesn't belong to anybody. It's outside the exclusive uh -huh. economic zone of any country. So there, no one owns this problem. This, these garbage patches... Uh, do not belong to anyone. And so there's no, and as I said, they're deserts. They're not really feeding the world. So uh, the, the fact that those creatures are being inundated with plastic is not uh, raising the hackles of any particular nation. Now, I think every coastal nation should be monitoring their inputs, uh, as we're starting to do here in California, and the uh, quantity of plastic in their coastal zone and their exclusive economic zone because if we do take some significant measures say for instance what uh, many people are proposing uh, eliminating the single-use shopping bag we'd like to know how much that's helping uh, uh, we've got to take significant measures that's for sure if anything's going to make a difference in this but as it is now no one will know uh, except for some very crude data from you know uh, beach cleanups, uh, whether what we're doing is, is improving the situation out in the ocean. So uh, it, I think it's just that we're doing the research, not so much that we're independent. It's just that no one else is doing it. Yes. Well, yeah, well, well, thank you for that. Uh, yes. Uh, 
Captain Charles Moore, I want to thank you for an enlightening, informative, and thoroughly depressing interview. Uh, for uh, it just, uh, you hear these things, you think you're making progress on one front, and then you hear about these things, and you just, just the sort of tidal wave that's out there that seems well, to be heading let towards me, the ocean. Let me put you on a on a downer for uh, the, the last comment here. Uh, <laughs> you know, we got a bill to prevent those pre-production plastic pellets from being discharged and no regulations have been written yet on that so they're still discharging them because there's a bill making it illegal but no one has made a regulation that will force anybody to stop discharging it but let's say they do and we get the factories to stop letting out those pellets we've got new bbs for kids soft bbs that they shoot now which are round plastic pellets that litter my alley i don't know where you live where the kids are playing but just watch where the kids are playing with these toy guns and you'll see all these little colored plastic pellets all over the ground those are rolling right straight down to the ocean look just like fish eggs and so we're shooting ourselves in the foot we're making a nurdle bill to get rid of the pre-production plastic pellets and we're allowing kids to shoot all these little pellets into the ocean so add that to the balloons that are going to go off here at graduation the, after graduation, there's going to be a solid line of balloons down the coast from San Francisco to Baja, California. And uh, we're just, you know, it's, uh, to me it's depressing as a, as a marine mammal to think that I have to recreate and live my water life in this garbage. Yes. Well, uh, <laughs> thanks for that. Um, and, uh, no, tr- seriously, uh, truly, uh, Captain Charles Moore, keep up the good work here. Just letting people know about this is the first step in, in hopefully changing the way we do business. And uh, thank you and uh, the Agalita Foundation. Uh, continue all your good work. Thank you. Yeah, for being we'll, here. we'll be sailing uh, June 10th for uh, three voyages to the gyre. So uh, thanks for the opportunity to let the public know. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And this is Weekly Signals.